everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Dedicated Attorneys. My name is Mike Gibb, and I run accountsrecovery.net, and I'm thrilled to be part of this podcast and bring our two great experts, Kelly Nepper-Stevens from True Accord and Nicole Strickler from Messer Strickler, to you today to offer their perspectives on an important compliance-related topic for the credit and collection industry. The objective is for Kelly and Nicole to work out the often competing considerations of an in-house counsel and an outside defense counsel. Kelly currently serves as the Vice President of Legal and Compliance at True Accord, and Nicole serves as a partner at Messer Strickler. Kelly, Nicole, great to have you back. Excited to be working with you again, and I know we've got a, a hot topic to discuss today. Excited to be here, Mike. Yes, thank you. We're excited to talk about this case today. There are so many great um, tidbits of, uh, of information here. Uh, just, to, just to provide a little bit of background, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but the, what we're, we're, we're talking about is a case uh, that came out of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals recently. Uh, the case is Lava Lee v. Med One Solutions, uh, in which uh, the appeals court affirmed a lower court's ruling that sending validation notices via email does not meet the FDCPA's definition of a communication. But I'll leave that to Nicole and Kelly to delve further into. Yeah, I feel like you left out some critical facts there that are mighty important, right? So Med One sending an email that contained the validation notice in it directly to the consumer. This was Med One sending an email, which you can see the text of it. They actually cut and paste it directly into the opinion where it says the subject line is Med One Solutions has sent you a message. And then it indicates you've received a secure package from info at Med One Solutions that has been certified and encrypted for your privacy. And then you can click on view secure package. And then it tells you what to do if you click on the link and it doesn't work. That's, that's pretty much it. Um, there's nothing, there's no uh, mini Miranda, there's no validation notice, nothing. Uh, and so the question was, um, you know, if MedOne provided this email and that link, that view secure package link, took you to the validation notice where the consumer um, could see the text of 1692G, if Med One had adequately provided the consumer with their validation rights uh, as part of the initial communication. And ultimately the court said what? No. Nope, you did not. Under these facts, right? Yeah. And I think sure. it's important, Kelly, that you read off that particular text of the email because I think obviously if the email had said something different, we would have gotten a different result um, because the court's reasoning, I think, is what's really interesting here. And, and basically what they decided, I mean, if you were to put it into like a, a one-liner, is basically giving the consumer means to access the information is not sufficient to constitute a communication under the act, right? Because yeah. the email itself did not convey information uh, associated with the debt. I mean, it was very generic. There was no personal information that was contained, no account number, uh, even, you know, no indication that MedOne Solutions was a debt collector. And I wonder even if MedOne Solutions had a name that indicated that it was a debt collector, if the court would have ruled differently. What do you think about that? 
who I don't know um, because I haven't really um, thought through that. So I, you know, I've been wandering around talking about this case and waiting for this decision to come out, mostly because of the lower court's decision, which said, listen, I get emails all the time from people I've never interacted with. And I have been told that you do not click on links from strangers that you get in your email. And the judge uh, in the lower court decision made the point of saying, even the Department of Homeland Security website, you know, makes clear that you should not click on links from strangers. You're opening yourself up to getting a virus or, you know, some other um, computer illness that's going to shut down your computer. So, so you shouldn't do it. And that's why they were saying, you know, so it's very likely for a consumer not to click on the link that they are provided by a company they've never worked for, that they don't recognize, that they haven't interacted with before, um, that they haven't received some other communication from. And that, that made sense to me, right? I mean, I think it's very distinguishable from when, you know, you're sending an email to a consumer that opens up, addresses the consumer, provides the mini Miranda, provides the validation notice in the body of the email itself. That's not what you had here. So, um, so I, I, I understood the courts, um, the lower courts opinion and, uh, I'm happy with how, you know, this court came out and, and how the seventh circuit, you know, affirmed that this was not a communication and was not, uh, an effective way to provide the validation notice. Um, you know, I think this case is interesting for a couple different reasons, which I think maybe some of the listeners would be curious as to, well, for one, why did Med One want this to be a communication? I mean, they argued, you know, both at the district court and at the appellate level that this initial communication, which really didn't say anything about the debt, was a communication. And this is clearly in contrast to, you know, what we in the defense arena have argued relative it's really contrary to what we have been arguing relative to voice messages for years right i mean we've always argued if there's a limited you know limited content message so to speak where you're not indicating that the you know communication is concerning a debt that it's not a communication i mean that's where most of the case law goes right you don't but call out the here, name right like the zortman message right. where you just yeah say hey this is med right because right? i and that's because everyone was trying to get get around FODI, right? Because, you know, there's the decision in FODI that said, you know, uh, that basically if you, you know, gave too much information about, you know, the uh, the attempt to collect a debt during your, your voicemail message, um, which was uh, something that, you know, routinely the, indus- the industry had been doing at that time, leaving messages that essentially said this is regarding an important business matter, call me back that that would constitute a communication and that, you know, your failure to give the mini Miranda or, you know, the subsequent communication, the disclosure that you were a debt collector would cause liability. So we've been all arguing for years, well, no, no, you know, in those circumstances, it's not a communication. And now in a completely different context, we have the Seventh Circuit saying, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, although that's not what Bed One argued here because they essentially couldn't argue that. Yeah, they needed um, it to be a communication because it was the first time that they sent a message to her and they provided her the mini Miranda, or they, they provided that link to the G notice. They spoke with her on the phone a couple months, I think, after sending her this email. And after that phone conversation, at the time of the phone conversation, they didn't give the validation notice. 
Um, five days after that phone conversation, they didn't give the validation notice. So she sued them saying, hey, you didn't give me the validation notice. And they said, oh, no, we did in our first communication, which was this email. And so that's why they were, in order for them to say, oh, yeah, we gave you this validation notice. It was in our initial communication. As the FDCPA says, you can do it in your initial communication. So this had to be an initial communication in order for them to have met their obligation under the statute because they didn't give it to her in that phone call and they didn't send her anything after that phone call. Right. And I think, I think from the decision, I mean, the court is clear that that email itself could have been the initial communication. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's, that's pretty certain, but under these particular circumstances where they did not convey any information about the debt, it wasn't. And also an important fact, you know, was that she didn't click on those links. If she would have clicked on those links, I think it would have been different as well. Yep. Um, because they could have shown that she clicked on the links. But I liked how they, the court went through, okay, there were six steps that the consumer needed to take in order to access this, um, uh, this G notice, right? She had to click on mm -hmm. the hyperlink. She had to check a box to sign for the secure package. Then she had to click on a link to open the secure package. She had to click on the attachments tab um, once that link opened. Then she had to click on the PDF file and then she had to hit view PDF with her Acrobat reader or save it to her hard drive or whatever to actually open up the PDF, right? So those six steps were six steps too many um, because Med One knew that she never clicked on that initial view secure package hyperlink. So, so they knew she didn't even take the first step. So they couldn't show that she ever saw um, that notice. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think in some ways, you know, I, I definitely, you know, have some, uh, some empathy here for, for med one, because I mean, and I, I don't know this, but I, I would assume that the reason why they wanted to go through all these secure steps was probably to guard her privacy, um, particularly in light of the fact that these are related to medical debts, yep. right? And so anytime there's medical debts, we're dealing with HIPAA you know, which has its privacy concerns and, and whatnot. I, I always get a lot of questions about that from a defense practitioner standpoint, you know, because, you know, compliance is always really concerned with HIPAA. Their clients are concerned with, with HIPAA, the hospitals and the medical providers. But sometimes, you know, your best efforts kind of go unrewarded. You know, you're trying to do the right thing here. You're trying to make it super secure. And in doing so, you know, end up violating a different consumer protection statute because, you're not aware of the interplay between the two, right? Yeah, um, I mean, I've been thinking through this a little bit, especially in light of the debt collection rulemaking and the authorization uh, that the rule uh, provides for debt collectors to send emails as initial communications with the 1692G notice, which this case doesn't impact whatsoever. And, you know, email is different then, uh, then, I mean, it's very similar to a letter in that you're sending it to um, a consumer that has this particular email account. Most people keep their email account for their life and they don't, the, the email doesn't get reassigned to somebody else. I mean, my old email from, uh, you know, the law school I went to is still my email. <laughs> they haven't given it to anybody else, right? My old 
AOL account, still mine. I could go log into it if I wanted to. Um, you know, and you have to log in to your email with a password in order to see it. Um, so I, I feel like, uh, you know, anyone could open the mail in my mailbox, I suppose. Any, all my neighbors could, you know, in light of the third circuit opinion yesterday on the, on the QVC code, right? Any of my neighbors could be banging around looking at, um, what's in the envelope or clicking on that QVC code. Not the same with my email, right? I think there's additional well. protections there. <laughs> I, I agree with you in part. I, I mean, and I, I think ultimately it's, it's definitely safer than say, you know, leaving a, a message on an answering machine in a family home where anybody could, you know, in theory, click the button to listen to it. Right. I mean, that was the traditional third party disclosure uh, concern that, that we had in the case law from, from, you know, years and years ago when people still had answering machines on their you know kitchen counter. Um, but I will say that there is a twist that, you know, I know some some people that share their email addresses with their spouse. Yeah, and we have so, discussed. Yeah, and it could be, you know, also I would say maybe when, you know, in a, you know, if your kids are older, perhaps that's your family, you know, email account where, you know, uh, all the things for the family go. So yeah. there, I think there still is a risk there. But what if you um, put that email down on your? application for credit what if you put that email down when you're at the hospital you know before you get your services right you the consumer write that email down as an email by which you want to communicate well i you know i think the there's i think it would depend upon what the language there you know says like you agree to you know that we and our you know, debt collector hires may contact you at this particular address would be one thing. You saying, hey, this is my email is another thing, right? Um, and I think in the context of medical debt, at least from what I've seen, you do get those enhanced consent disclosures, again, because of HIPAA. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you're going to have a good argument that alone that just by listing your email on a sheet of paper that that gives a debt collector down the line the right to you know, disclose whatever personal information to that email address. And I, I think you can compare it to the phone number example. You know, just putting your phone number down does not necessarily mean that, you know, you're consenting that, you know, debt collector can you know, say whatever they want in a communication with you in contrast to say, you know, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act where there's been specific, um, specific uh, opinions that have that have said and you know by the FCC that you know providing that contact information does does give someone the right to auto dial your cell phone so I think there's a there's a distinguishing factor there between the two statutes okay. um, so for the purposes of folks that want to use email to communicate with consumers about their account I think there's some solid takeaways here um, that can be used, right? So one, if you want to use your email as an initial communication um, where you're providing the G notice, uh, if you're going to lock that G notice behind several steps that a consumer has to take, it's not going to be considered to be a communication. So at least if it looks something like the med one here, 
uh, that you can see in the opinion. And so if you later talk to the consumer and you know the consumer didn't click on that link, you should give that uh, communicate that G notice either in that communication or send it, uh, send it out in accordance with um, the statute within five days following that conversation. Would you agree? So uh, kind of, I mean, my advice would be um, a little different, not that anyone may take this as legal advice because we're not allowed to do that. Um, but I would say I, first, I, I really wouldn't include any links to validation notices, period. I mean, if, if your email right now is going to be the method of communicating with the consumer, I, I think, you know, risk, reward, I would just include it in the email. I, I don't know how, you know, realistically you're really going to have third-party disclosure in email. I mean, I know I gave the example of people sharing email addresses, but it's probably pretty rare, right? So if you're and it's less likely to have a class action effect because um, third-party disclosure cases are really hard to, to, to get class action certifications on um, than you would if, you know, you basically make the consumer go through numerous steps and you have this big class of people that you know haven't received, you know, the information. Also, I will say, you know, those concerned with HIPAA or, you know, the consumer privacy, I mean, HIPAA has no private right of action. I'm not saying don't comply with HIPAA, but I'm saying from a risk perspective, your HIPAA risk is way lower than your FDCPA risk, right? Yeah, for sure. So I like it just in the body of the email and you know the consumer opened it and, you know, but that being said, I mean, if the consumer never opens the email itself, does that mean that it wasn't the initial communication and thus, you know, you're and out of luck? Where does the mailbox rule apply to an email? We don't know yet. And the CFPB is kind of silent on that in their proposed rule. They never simply articulate uh, that the mailbox rule would apply to email. They say that here's how you can send it and here's how you can avoid a third party violation. Um, and so I'm presuming that under the rule that by sending it the way that they've suggested, which uh, as an initial communication, uh, you can put it in the body of your email, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You have to make sure that uh, the consumer has the ability to access it, right? They, they want to make sure that you um, uh, do so in a manner that's reasonably expected to provide actual notice and in a form that the consumer can keep and access later, right? So as long as you're doing, as you're doing that, you're meeting the requirements under the proposed rule. It, it doesn't really say, and hey, sending it is enough. Um, so it'd be helpful that they we're completely clear that the mailbox rule applies to emails sent that meet the requirements herein. Yeah, I mean, in, in theory, right, it should. I mean, the mailbox rule should apply to email, but whether or not it does apply to email, I think I agree with you, it's an open question and it's probably gonna have to be litigated at some point in order to get an answer, unless the CFPB, in the context of the correct collection rules, you know, issues some type of ruling to that effect. Um, which is always a good question, too, because I, as I read through the rules, you know, the CFPB obviously has authority, right, to implement 
implement the rules, but they can't go so far as changing the underlying text of the statute as well. So, you know, that's, so it's, it's really, it's open to me about how much they really can do. And, and I think eventually when those rules are approved, um, that'll be a, a, a question that's going to come up. Well, and then uh, speaking of nuggets, I mean, we could probably talk for an hour about this case because it also goes into, um, you know, whether or not the consumer suffered harm and whether the consumer has standing and finds oh, that yeah. this case is distinctly different from the Castillas case that the Seventh Circuit just came out with, uh, you know, and said that the consumer here in this, you know, Lavalle, I don't know how to pronounce the consumer's name, case, the Lavalle, Lavalle, whatever. Lavalle. Lavalie, thanks. Lavalie case uh, that she uh, she does have standing um, because the notice was never provided. So a consumer does not have standing if the notice is provided and it's somehow insufficient, but does have standing if no notice is given at all. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. <laughs> they, they, it was a really interesting distinguish, uh, distinguishing factor that they brought up, right? Um, I, it was interesting to see them try to rec reconcile Casillas, which I know that you and I have talked about a lot, and I've been using a lot in the defense context in terms of Article Three standing and you know what is and what isn't you know harm, um, you know under Article Three. I think they made two two points basically in the Slavoli case about standing, right? And and or at least trying to distinguish the case from Casillas. Casillas was a case where the 1692G notice was provided, but it was provided um, inadequately, I suppose, meaning the the rights were given about the fact that you could request validation um, and that you could request the name and the address of the original creditor. But in that case, they left out that it had to be in writing right, that the request had to be in writing. And the court in that case went through a really detailed analysis and basically held under the circumstances where that particular consumer um, had no, you know, dispute of the debt, had no desire to dispute the debt, would never have disputed the debt. There was no harm, right? Here, I think in addition to not being provided any notice whatsoever about 1692G, the second part here, was that she was also a defendant in a collection suit. Um, and so the court went as far to say it was reasonable to infer she would have exercised her rights, which I thought was kind of interesting because it was really unclear whether she was defending the collection lawsuit about the debt or whether she was just a defendant. I don't know that it's reasonable to infer that a consumer would have exercised their validation rights just because they're a defendant in a collection lawsuit, I mean, they still could obviously have no dispute about the debt. I think those circumstances could have been the same. So I'm not quite clear on the, on the record there. I wish the court would have gone so far as to specify whether she was actively defending it or not. But those were the two um, distinguishing factors that, that the court talked about. And I thought those were really interesting. And um, obviously, it's something to consider as we're all fighting our Casillas battles in the Seventh Circuit now. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, um, thinking about it that way, how, you know, clearly this one consumer got her rights, wasn't going to dispute, and here, 
with Lavalie, she didn't get the opportunity to even have her rights. So she, she didn't know that she wasn't going to dispute. You know, it kind of makes me go like a little bit further too. And I, I can't stop really thinking about this and I could probably talk about this in a whole nother podcast with you, but if, if it's really a factual determination about what the consumer, her or himself would have done relative to the debt, doesn't that kind of throw out the unsophisticated consumer standard? Like, why are we looking at things so objectively? I mean, isn't it subjective then as well? Isn't there a subjective and an objective element? How exactly does that work? Have I stumped everyone now? No. Definitely me. Um, I think, I think that's a good point. Um, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I think we're, we're all just so quick to go into the unsophisticated consumer standard or the least sophisticated consumer standard. And isn't the first step, though, to see if the consumer herself or himself was actually misled? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's open, open for litigation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and maybe they'll say, you know, it's a different inquiry when you're looking at it from the standing perspective of the particular consumer and whether that consumer was harmed and what action they specifically would take versus evaluating the four corners of a collection communication and how that impacts the least sophisticated consumer. Yeah, it's possible. All right, so what does this say about limited content messages via email? Because I feel like it opens the door for um, folks, and the CFPB did ask uh, for commentary on this as part of the rule. You know, they have a limited content message that they're proposing. They were suggesting that folks would want to use it uh, in email or would like to know about whether or not people would like to use it in email. And I just think it's an opportunity for folks who are emailing to get in trouble with high spam rates because if you're sending things that aren't targeted directly at a person, it's likely that your emails will get lumped into spam, particularly if you're sending a high volume of them, and that that's something that you want to avoid, um, you know, is having your emails go to spam because then, you know, the consumer's not seeing them anyways and isn't going to call in. You know, I think that, um, I think it really opens the door to limited content messages in email and, and, and other areas too, right? Voice messages, text messages. Um, yeah. I, I think it definitely changes, um, changes the, the playing field on, okay. on all of those. I mean, I, I always like thinking, thinking about things though, in terms of the newer technologies as opposed to just phone and voicemail, because I mean, that's clearly the future, right? right. I mean, that's usually people's preferred method of, of communication. And I mean, people don't, in my opinion, like voice messages anymore. Most people don't even listen to them anymore. But text and email are, are easy, less intrusive means, right? So figuring out how to do those effectively is going to be the next step for, you know, collectors if they haven't been doing that already. And I, I think it does open up the limited content, you know, um, choice now for, for the industry. And, but I think you make a good point about, you know, spam and, um, you know, figuring out exactly how to do it the right way without, you know, running into to operational issues. And I suppose, too, that the facts of this particular case, you know, they weren't arguing about 
I mean, I'm not sure. Did she bring a claim before I say, before I say it, did she bring a claim saying, I mean, they were just defending by saying this is a communication and the court came out and said it wasn't a communication. So the court didn't really evaluate this to say, you know, I mean, I guess if it's not a communication, then this particular language could be used in the future and said in the Seventh Circuit, hey, this isn't a communication. Well, yeah, I mean, the court, let me see, I actually wrote down exactly what was included. The court kind of went through why they thought it wasn't a communication. Yeah, they based looked upon the information. At several other voicemail cases to evaluate whether or not um, it kind of met the terms of what they feel like a communication is, right? The message must imply the existence of the debt, right? And here, there was no implication yeah. that there was a debt whatsoever, right? Right, because there was only the sender's name, email address, and secure message. Those were the three things that they discussed being contained, and they said that alone was not was not enough. And then they looked at the Brown versus Xander Credit Court case in the Sixth Circuit and the Hart case out of the Eleventh Circuit. Um, kind of a compare contrast. And I, yeah, and ultimately it came up that the message must at least imply the existence of a debt. So I think that's, that's really great. Um, I think ultimately this is a great case for our industry with really great um, guidance that you know gives us some leeway on communications yeah i'm i'm glad that it came out the way it did because i've been waiting for it for so long <laughs> yeah all oh, of us have been even mentioned <laughs> that at no point does the court discuss e-sign so and then we totally <laughs> should probably wrap this up as this is getting somewhat long but you know the cfpb when it gets to the seventh circuit files this amicus brief and says hey you know, Med One didn't shouldn't have been sending this anyways because they didn't have e-sign consent, and um, you know, it wasn't raised below the court below didn't get to hear about it, which is like a number one rule. You can't raise something on appeal for the first time, usually for the most part. And so, uh, you know, they, the parties argued about e-sign. Uh, ACA ended up filing a brief on behalf of uh, the credit and collection industry related to e-sign and the court was like yeah we're not going to talk about e-sign because it wasn't raised below and it doesn't matter because this wasn't a communication yeah i think and and i agree i was happy to to see that too because i know there's been a ton of e-sign discussions since the cfpb filed that amicus brief in this case and kelly i know you and i talked about it a ton and i i think what the cfpb was missing in their analysis was the fact that the initial communication doesn't have to be in writing, right? It doesn't. I mean, and the disclosures can be contained in the initial communication, even if that communication is oral. So why exactly are we talking about the necessity of e-sign? Yep, because um, e-sign only applies when a statute requires that something be provided to a consumer in writing. And since right, the and this doesn't. communicate, that's right. Yes. We agree here, though. So, We're going to affirmatively shout about this. <laughs> I know Mike, Mike was do you had a question but I forgot what it was Mike my question uh, which I think we've addressed in, in, a, in a couple of different ways was couldn't they have just changed the the subject line or something in the message to make it clear about what it was and avoided all of this yeah so I say no they could have changed the subject line to make it more 
uh, of a debt collection communication, right? If they, if their subject line had targeted her, indicated that it was a debt, the court might have found that it was a communication. But that doesn't get around the fact that they still didn't have those validation that that wording in the email itself. So whatever the subject line said, she still had to click on a link and do seven, six, six other or five other steps in order to get to the notice that they were supposed to give her. So if they had changed the subject line and it was a communication, um, then they would uh, not have effectively given that G notice either. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. <clears throat> well, great. I think Kelly and I were so excited about talking about this case that we tried to cover absolutely everything we could, but I'm sure we'll I mean, still I keep talking still about, talk it about it for another 20 minutes. So, but we, we won't yeah, do that. I knew enough just to stay out of the way. So I was very, uh, very entertained by the enthusiasm uh, that, you know, that you both <laughs> brought to the discussion. So thank you for that. Thanks for having us. Well, yeah. Thanks Mike. Thank you everybody for, thank you both. And thanks to everybody for listening to another episode of two dedicated attorneys. We'll have Kelly and Nicole back soon for another episode. Uh, until then, everybody take care.